Thank you, Rachel, and the band for leading us in worship this morning. Again, just a really warm welcome to you if you're a visitor. If you're here for the first time, it's great to have you with us. On your seat, there's an outline which has uh, all the points and all the verses that we're looking at today, and they'll be up on the screen as well. One of my favorite places in Scotland is a, is a place called Rest and Be Thankful, which is a little place at the top of a mountain pass on the A83, about halfway between Loch Lomond and Loch Fyne. And the original road up through this pass was built by the British Army uh, after 1745, after the uh, Jacobite Revolution, when Bonnie Prince Charlie tried to claim the throne of Britain. And the soldiers then, after that, after they put that uh, rebellion down, they built this road right the way up through the highlands of Scotland so that the soldiers could move around the country uh, more easily and could put down any more rebellions and so on. And the men who built the original military road, which is still there, well, there's now a, a modern road just kind of up the hill slightly from it. Um, when they finished building this road in 1750, they erected a stone at the top of the pass. And on the, top, and on the stone, just a little stone, it's still there, it says this, rest and be thankful. Rest and be thankful. Because when you get to the top of what would have been on foot, a really, really long hike, you are really ready for a rest and you are really thankful that you are there. Now, I wouldn't fancy trying to hike up this valley today, and I certainly wouldn't have wanted to do that back in the 1700s in a pair of kind of old boots and uh, all the kind of military kit and all that kind of stuff. It must have been really difficult for them. And even when you drive up in a car, I think your car is actually really thankful to get to the uh, kind of top of it. There's a real sense of achievement that you've made it, that you've kind of got to the top, and you've done it. And, and you're definitely thankful that you're, that, that, that you're there, and you're definitely ready for that rest. And if you turn around, you can see the beautiful view back down the road, and you can see how far you've managed to come. Should be a picture there coming up for us of the view back down the road. Um, and then when you get to the top and you turn around, then you can see into the next glen, and you can see the beautiful view of Loch Restel. And before cars were invented, there must have been a real sense of being really so thankful that you'd actually made it. That's the view back down the valley, and then we've got the view over the top into the next uh, glen, and you see Loch Restor. And before cars were invented, it, it must have been a real sense of, whew, we've made it, we've got to the top, and I'm going to rest, and I really am going to be thankful for this. As long as it wasn't raining, which to be fair, with all due respect to our Scottish friends over here this morning, there's a strong likelihood it would be because it often does rain in the west of Scotland. Yeah. Rob's from the west of Scotland. Actually, he's not. He's from London. But anyway, I'll take that back. Yeah, you were born in the same hospital as me. Anyway, to finally get there, to rest and finally be thankful that you'd made it, you'd arrived there at the top of that long kind of slog up that hill. But then, of course, you just have to carry on with your journey because there's actually nothing there. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. There's just a kind of car park and amazing views. So you just have to carry on. You're just looking at a view and that's all there is. And anyone traveling on this road is only on the way to somewhere else. It's not a destination in itself. It's just a kind of pausing point, a stopping point on the way to somewhere else. You only ever get there. It's kind of a, a temporary rest on the way to somewhere else. And actually, you probably wouldn't want to stay that to actually stay there very long. Every time Claire and I have ever been, it's always been cold and windy and pretty wet. Anyway, it's still an awesome place. If you're ever in Scotland, that area, do rest and be thankful when you get there. Now, the Bible, and especially the book of Hebrews that we're uh, studying at the moment, uses this word rest to describe what happens at the end of time for those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus and have surrendered their life to him. It uses this picture of life being kind of like a long-distance race. And 
life is kind of like a long-distance race, and we're running towards the finishing line. And it tells us to run with perseverance the race that we're running. It tells us to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. And it tells us as we do so to fix our eyes on the finishing line, fixing our eyes on Jesus himself. And for the person who's trusted in Jesus, life is like a long-distance race that's often hard work. It's often difficult. Life can be really difficult as a follower of Jesus. And it takes great commitment. But crossing the finishing line is amazing because we finally get to meet Jesus. And when we cross the finishing line, which will happen either when we die or when we go to be with Jesus or, or when Jesus comes again, whichever of those things happens first, we'll begin the most amazing rest that we can ever imagine. And it wouldn't be a temporary rest where we just kind of admire the view for a little while. We pause and, and, and rest and be thankful. That's nice. But this isn't a temporary rest. This is an eternal rest that goes on forever and forever. It's an eternal rest that never comes to an end. And it's not just a, a kind of rest where we stop and, and cease from what we're doing, where we just kind of do nothing. It's a rest where we actually celebrate forever, finally being with Jesus and finally being there forever. So we're going to look at our passage today, which is Hebrews 4. We're going to look from uh, verses 1 to 11. Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 11. If you've got a Bible handy, I encourage you to turn with me. Uh, if you haven't or you, you, know, you don't want to do that, that's fine. You can just listen as I read the verses to you. So Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 to 11 says this, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So this passage talks about God's rest, and it also talks about God resting. And that goes right the way back to the beginning of the Bible. But what is God's rest? What does it mean in this passage when it talks about God resting? And what does it mean about us entering into God's rest? Well, the idea of God's rest or the idea of resting itself goes right back to the beginning of the Bible when God created the world, the whole universe in just six days as he spoke the whole world, the whole universe into being. And then on the seventh day, he rested. If you look at verses three to four of our passage, it says this, now we who have believed enter that rest just as God said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And he's talking here about the disobedient Israelites, which we looked at last week. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. 
For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his work. So the author of the book of Hebrews here is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, which is the account of the creation of the whole universe. And the Old Testament of the Bible was written in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, the word for, that's translated into English as rest is sabbat or sabbath as we say in English. When God created time itself, he created a seven-day week with the seventh day being a day of rest. And he's hardwired that concept into our very DNA. You just try working for a few weeks without a day off and pretty soon your health will collapse, you'll collapse mentally and physically because we're not designed, just keep working. We're designed to have a day of rest, one in seven. God has wired that into us and that comes right back from creation itself. God rested and so we need to rest. And then when God chose the people of Israel and entered into this special covenant relationship with them, he reiterated and he reinforced to them this concept of Sabbath, the weekly day of rest. In Exodus 20, as God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments as he spoke to Moses, we read these words, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath was on one level just a simple physical day of rest because we need to rest on the seventh day because God knows that and he's kind of wired that into us. But there's more to the Sabbath than just enabling human beings to rest and be refreshed, as good as that is. And it wasn't so much that the Sabbath day itself was important. The whole point of remembering and observing the Sabbath was that the people of Israel would then focus on God. It was about them giving them a day where they would really kind of focus on God in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done otherwise. And by remembering how God had created in six days and then rested, they were actually being pointed back to their creator to worship him and to enjoy his goodness to them. But the Sabbath, this special day of rest, was also intended to remind the people of Israel of what God had done for them when he rescued them out of Egypt and he took them out of slavery and took them, uh, uh, as Moses led them out of slavery uh, from Egypt. And, and, and God says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 5 when he repeats the Ten Commandments. He says this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So God rescued his people from Egypt and he gave them rest or Sabbath from slavery, from their work as slaves. So the Sabbath has a, a, a kind of wider meaning than just resting from physical work. The weekly physical rest for the people of Israel was a kind of weekly reminder and a pointer towards a much greater rest for the people of Israel which God had given them when he brought them out of slavery and they were able to rest from their slavery. And then after spending 40 years in the desert, after leaving uh, their slavery back in Egypt, God led the people of Israel over the river Jordan into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land we now uh, know as Israel. Moses died. He was succeeded by Joshua. And Joshua led the people of Israel then over the river Jordan and into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 12 verse 10, we read these words. But you will cross the Jordan and settle into the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. He will give you rest. So God had promised this special land that they would live in, a land the Bible talked about as flowing with milk and honey. In other words, a kind of place of blessing and food and provision and goodness. So this time is not just a, a day of rest, it's a whole existence of rest now. 
people of Israel are going to go into a whole existence of resting from their enemies in the desert, and they're in this wonderful place of provision, the land flowing of milk and honey that God is giving to them, a whole existence of rest. They would rest from all their enemies, they would live in safety in the promised land, and God would and did give them many, many great blessings. And all of those things happened. God created the world in six days. He rested on the Sabbath. On the seventh, the people of Israel then rested once a week. On the Sabbath day, God then gave them rest from their slavery when he rescued them from Egypt. And then he led them into a whole existence of Sabbath, of rest under Joshua as they went into the promised land. But in addition to all those things actually happening, all being real events, they were also pictures of something bigger and greater. They all pointed forward to a massively greater and better eternal rest that God is offering and gives to those who trust in him right throughout history. And in our passage today, in, in, in verse 8, we read these words. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would, n- would not have spoken later about another day. Joshua did lead the people of Israel into the promised land and into that rest that God had promised them, rest from their enemies and the enjoyment and the celebration of this promised land. But the rest that Joshua led them into was just a kind of temporary existence that was itself a picture of a much greater rest that God offers us in the future. God speaks throughout the Bible about another day of rest which is still to come. It's still future for us. And it's not a physical day where we kind of stop working and focus on God and celebrate what he's done for us. This future day of rest is actually how the Bible refers to us spending eternity with God, resting from all the hardships of this life and enjoying him and worshipping him and serving him forever. And so in verse 9, we read this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own works, just as God did from his. Now this Sabbath that we're talking about doesn't last just for 24 hours. It goes on forever and ever. And it doesn't just involve thinking about God. It's actually being with God forever and ever. And just as God rested from his work on the seventh day when he created the universe, so we, if we've trusted in Jesus, will rest from all of the hardships and the difficulties of this life. So what is God's rest? Well, what is this rest that the Bible talks about and that God promises and that we're reading about here in Hebrews 4? Well, it's, it's going to happen when Jesus comes again to rule and to reign. And time comes to an end. And those who have trusted in Jesus get to spend eternity with him. One of the clearest pictures that we have of it in the Bible is found in Revelation 21, where the Apostle John, who who wrote the book of Revelation, he's given this vision by the Holy Spirit of what will happen at the end of time. And this is what he saw, or this is part of his uh, vision. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So when Jesus comes to rule and to reign, he would, he's going to destroy this world, destroy this whole world, and create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And right at the center of all that Jesus does will be God's people, the church, all those that throughout history have trusted, who have trusted in Jesus. And in this passage, he calls the church the New Jerusalem, 
the, the new city where God will live. But rather than being a physical city, the physical city of Jerusalem, God will live amongst those who have trusted in Jesus right throughout history. So it's not a physical city, it's a holy city and it's a spiritual city comprised of people rather than a city made up of buildings. It's a kind of picture that the Bible uses to describe what it will be like for God to live amongst his people, those who've trusted in him. So the church, all those that have trusted in Jesus, and if that's you this morning, then you are part of the church, are going to be like a city where God lives right amongst his people forever. And then he calls the church in this passage his bride. The Bible uses this picture of the church being the bride of Jesus, just like a groom loves his bride and will do anything for her, so Jesus loves his bride, the church, and gave his life for her. It was about 28 28 years ago today since I first went out with Claire. It's our first date, 28 years ago today. It wasn't a great success. We had a potluck lunch at church, at her church in London. Uh, We were in the evening service holding hands under my Bible first time ever and then I started throwing up and I didn't stop throwing up for about 24 hours I got food poisoning from the ch- from the potluck lunch but we did get married and we've been married 26 years and we're married and we love each other but human marriage is just a, a kind of faint picture of a much more amazing marriage the marriage of Jesus and his church all those that love him and right throughout the Bible we've got this wonderful picture of Jesus and his church. Just as a groom loves his bride and will do anything for her, so Jesus loves his bride, the church, and gave his life for it. And when Jesus comes to rule and reign, all those that have trusted in him, what the Bible calls the church, will come with him from heaven and will have been made perfect and sinless just like Jesus. And to make the point, in John's vision, he sees the church like a pure and perfect bride dressed in white to symbolize the purity that they've been completely changed and been like Jesus. And the bride and groom, this picture of the church and Jesus, the bride and groom live together forever. The bride, which is the church, and the groom, which is Jesus, will be united for all eternity. So in this little vision that John gets, we get two pictures. One is of a city. That's the church, with God living in the middle of that city. It's kind of a picture. Then we get the picture of the bride, and we are the bride, and Jesus is the groom, and we're united with him forever. And so what will this rest be like? Well, God will come and live with us forever. He'll be right there in the midst of us and live with us forever. And we will forever be with him and enjoy him and enjoy all that he is. God is the gospel. God is the good news. He is the one that we are living for and looking forward to. And then there'll be no sin there. Sin will have been banished forever because Satan, the very source of sin, will have been removed forever. So there's no more sin. No sin there. And because there's no sin, that means there's no pain. And there's no sadness. And the greatest thing of all, there is no more death. Death will be banished from this new kingdom of God. Death will be gone forever. No more death. No more sin. No more pain. No more sadness. No more death. This is better than a day off at the end of the week. It's better than a holiday. It's better than resting from slavery, as good as that would have been. It's even better than the promised land that God gave to Israel. All of those things that are real were just pictures of the greatest rest that we could ever experience, which is being with God forever in what he calls his eternal rest, this Sabbath rest for God's people. I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle to kind of imagine, well, what will this be like? What will heaven, what will be that eternal, what will that eternal state be like? Difficult, isn't it? Because all we've ever known is this world. And the Bible does give us some information, but not a huge amount, probably because we couldn't really take it in. Max Licato, a, a, a great author, if you haven't read his books, I would encourage you to read them. Max Licato has written these words. Because of sin, you've snapped at the ones you love and argued with the ones you cherish. You have felt ashamed, guilty, 
bitter. You have ulcers, sleepless nights, cloudy days, and a pain in the neck, but you won't have those in heaven. Because of sin, the young are abused and the elderly forgotten. Because of sin, God is cursed and drugs are worshipped. Because of sin, the poor have less and the affluent want more. Because of sin, babies have no daddies and husbands have no wives. But in heaven, sin will have no power. In fact, sin will have no presence. There will be no sin. Sin aside, a thousand heartaches and broken a million promises. Your addiction can be traced back to sin. Your mistrust can be traced back to sin. Bigotry, robbery, adultery, all because of sin. But in heaven, all of this will end. Can you imagine a world without sin? If so, you can begin to imagine heaven. So how do we enter God's rest? How do we enter this amazing experience of God's rest? How do we get to be part of this amazing eternal existence without any sin? or the effects of sin, and where we will be with God forever. Well, verse 3 gives us the answer. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. The way we get to enter God's eternal rest and amazing rest is through believing in Jesus. It's through belief in Him. We enter God's rest through believing in Jesus, in who He is, and all that He's done for us. And today, if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and surrendered your life to Him, That's something you can do this very moment. That's something that you can do this morning, to believe in Jesus, that He is God come as a human being, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He took the punishment, He took your place. He bore the wrath of God instead so that you wouldn't have to. And if you turn away from your sinful life and ask Him to forgive your sins, the Bible calls it repentance, turning away from our old life and turning to God. And if we give our lives to Him, then He will give you forgiveness He will give you a relationship with God and he will give you eternal life and entrance into this wonderful rest in the future. And that's a step that you could take this morning if you've never taken that step today. And if you want to do that, you can do that right now or you can come and chat with me or perhaps whoever brought you this morning. I'd be delighted to help you do that. If you're thinking about that this morning, can I just encourage you, don't go home without doing that. It's so important that we give our lives to Jesus But we need to be careful because as we saw last week, we might think we've believed in Jesus and put our faith and trust in him, but actually we might not have done. Just because we've said a prayer or or, or been baptized or done Christianity Explorer or Alpha or something like that doesn't actually mean we've been truly born again. doesn't actually necessarily mean we've truly trusted in Jesus. And that's why verse 11 says this, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. He's referring to the disobedience of the people of Israel who looked like they were trusting in God when they came out of Egypt and they looked like they were serving him but as soon as problems came along they were disobedient, they turned their backs on God and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They'd never really trusted in God in the first place. They'd never really given their lives to him in the first place. So who will enter God's rest then? Well, as we've already seen in verse 3, now we who have believed enter that rest. It's those who've believed and trusted in Jesus. But as we saw last week, there is a condition. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. It's only those who persevere to the end of their lives or until Jesus comes again, whichever is first, that get to share in this amazing eternal rest that God offers. If someone has genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus, then they will persevere right till the very end. They will keep living for God and serving Him. And it's only those that keep on living for God and and keep serving Him right till the end that have genuinely trusted in Jesus and have believed in Him. 
So who will enter God's rest? Well, it's those who believe in Jesus and persevere to the end. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. Now, persevering to the end doesn't mean that we won't have problems. It doesn't mean we won't wander away from God from time to time. It doesn't mean we won't let God down and make a mess of things. But if we've genuinely trusted in Jesus and surrendered our lives to him, then our eternal destiny is in his hands. And he will see us safe to the end of the race that is our lives. The Apostle Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This amazing inheritance, this salvation, this amazing eternal rest is kept in heaven for us right now. And we're shielded by God's power until Jesus comes again. It's not dependent on how good we are, it's what he's done for us. And if we've genuinely trusted in him, we are shielded by God's power. And the, the, the Holy Spirit lives within us. He's that, that stamp, that deposit, that mark that guarantees our inheritance and enables us to persevere to the end of our lives. This amazing salvation, this amazing eternal rest that God has prepared for all those that have trusted in Jesus is ready to be revealed when Jesus comes again. So those who have genuinely believed will be shielded by God's power and will be kept by God's power and will one day enter that rest, whether that's through death or when Jesus comes again. And the great thing is that if we've genuinely trusted in Jesus this morning, then he will give us the strength to persevere doesn't mean that we won't struggle and find that difficult and sometimes make a mess of things, but he will give us and he will keep us in his hands as we often sing, Jesus commands my destiny. And just as those travelers in the past used to make it to the top of the pass and then rest from all their efforts to make it up the hill and were thankful to have done so. So if we've trusted in Jesus, we will one day get to the end of our race. We'll reach the top of our hill and we'll see Jesus face to face and will enter his amazing and eternal rest. But there's a, a real caution here for us. Life is often hard and difficult, isn't it? And there's all sorts of obstacles, and there can be all kinds of problems and, and, and difficulties and temptations and struggles that we'll face. And sometimes, even though we are genuinely believers, we can be tempted just to give up or at the very least kind of take a break and check out. We can be genuinely saved, genuinely born again, and we will persevere to the end, but, and we, we will make it to the top of that hill. But we can sometimes almost use that as an excuse to kind of take a break, to drop out for a while. If you've truly trusted in Jesus, then Satan has no hold on you. There's nothing he can do to stop you reaching that eternal rest. It's Jesus who commands your destiny. But if he can get you to wander around for a little bit, or kind of go back down the hill for a while, or wander off and take a break from the journey just so that you can be, make yourself more comfortable, then he'll do just that. And he'll do that through all sorts of stuff, all sorts of legitimate stuff that comes up and it's our work, or holidays, or, or careers, or hobbies, or a, a relationship. It can be all kinds of different stuff that just helps, helps take our eyes off Jesus and gets us kind of going for a wander for a little bit. Instead of focusing on Jesus, instead of focusing on the finishing line, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus and pressing on towards our eternal rest. And Satan will kind of come up with all kinds of stuff to get you to pull you away from that 
and get you to waste time, waste years of your life kind of wandering off doing other stuff. Maybe not wrong stuff, just stuff that you, just a waste of time. Sometimes it is wrong stuff. Sometimes it's stuff that's really sinful. And Satan will pull us away and try and get us and, and stop us focusing on him. Following Jesus is often really difficult. Satan will throw everything at us, whether it's illness or temptations or discouragements. And if you're anything like me, then sometimes you'll just feel like giving up and dropping out of the race. Just can't be bothered anymore. I just haven't got the energy to keep doing this. Or, do you know what? I just want to take some time out from this. But Jesus is there at the finishing line, at the top of the hill, urging us on, calling us to himself calling us to keep going, to keep focusing on Him, to keep our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus, and to focus on that eternal rest that we have ahead of us. This life can be, and often is, really difficult, but the eternal rest that awaits us will be truly worth it all as we finally meet Jesus face to face, and we spend eternity with Him. The very best that this world can offer is ultimately fluff compared with whatever Jesus has to offer us. This life can be difficult and can be hard, but it will be worth it. It will be worth it all when we finally see Jesus face to face. I'll just take a few moments to pause and reflect. It may be this morning that you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus so that one day you can enter his rest. If, if you haven't taken that step, not maybe not physically bowing your knees, but actually kind of mentally bowing your knees and saying, Lord Jesus, I have sinned, I've messed up, my life is not what it should be, I've lived my way rather than your way, and I come to you this morning and I ask you to forgive me, thank you for dying on the cross, come and please live within me and make me a brand new person. That's a, that's a prayer that you can pray right now in your heart. You can pray that prayer right now and become uh, a follower of Jesus and know that the Spirit of God will come and live within you and guarantee your inheritance, a done deal. Maybe if you're not ready for that, you might want to just come and chat with me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have trusted in Jesus, and that's perhaps most of us here this morning, but right now life is really difficult. And again, that's probably most of us here this morning in, in one way or another. And you're struggling to keep going up the hill towards the finishing line because it's hard. It's difficult. It's really difficult right now. And can I encourage you to... Fix your eyes on Jesus, not focus on yourself or your problems, but to fix your eyes on Jesus and keep going. Because God's eternal rest really will be worth whatever struggles you're going through in this life. The Apostle Paul says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That eternal glory is the Sabbath rest that God promises those who trust in Him. Let's just pause and, and just maybe in this moment, do business with God as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. pray. Father, we come and bow before you. We thank you for this wonderful Sabbath rest that lies ahead of us. 
an eternal rest from all of the, the hard work of our lives, an eternal rest from sin, an eternal rest from death and from sin and mourning and hurt and sickness and sadness, an eternal rest in your presence to enjoy you forever where we are your city, where you live. We are your bride, Lord Jesus, and we will be with you, united to you forever. We praise you for these wonderful pictures of rest, of, of a city, of uh, a bride and a marriage, all which speak of this final moment when we are with you forever. Lord, would you encourage us, would you give us the strength to keep pressing on, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we long, Lord, for that day when we will finally see you face to face and be in your presence forever. We give you thanks. We celebrate, in fact, we celebrate the wonderful, great future that we have ahead of us. We praise you. We give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Band are going to come and lead us in one final song. There's a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb. And we'll stand and sing. Thanks.